out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Dorothy Max Pryor, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. Um, yes, one-time member of Rima Rima also had a moment with Psychic TV and has worked in a lot of different theatre groups, dance groups and much, much more. So um, it's, she's got a fantastic life and is writing her memoirs, so that should be coming out at the end of the year. But this is the interview. You're going to find out so much more about Dorothy. It's fascinating, so do take notes. I will test you at the end. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Dorothy, tell us once, tell us everything, tell us now. When I was very young, I remember people in the playground used to say, oh, who do you prefer, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? And I always used to answer the monkeys. Right. So I remember the monkeys as a, a massive early love. Um, and now when I look back, the whole idea of this fabricated band, and you know, the sort of TV show and everything, I think it's absolutely brilliant. But I did also like the Beatles as well. And, and I liked the, you know, Brian Jones era, Rolling Stones. Um, so that's sort of kind of childhood stuff. And then I used to kind of raid my dad's record collection because he really liked um, Frank and Nancy Sinatra. So wow. I got my love of Nancy Sinatra and then, you know, Nancy and Lee and whatever through my dad. He also had lots of, um, yeah, kind of, kind of jazz, easy listening sort of things. So things, you know, things like Ella Fitzgerald and Peggy Lee um, and things like that. Yes. Uh, that time and then but then the kind of hitting teenage years and having my own taste separate to to that you know that nothing to do with my dad sort of thing where he'd turn his nose up and sneer at me um would be things yes like David Bowie Mm -hmm. um and T-Rex I saw Tyrannosaurus Rex as they were then called in very early days I mean I was probably only about 14 or 15 um, I think I saw them at, at a youth club. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, but I think I did. And it was just like two of them, you know. It was it it was um, just just the pair of them, you know. The, yes. the yeah, Mark Singh, the um, bongos, whatever. Yeah. Um, so that was, and then of course they became fantastic glam stars, things like Hot Love. So that that those were the sort of singles I bought. Things like T Rex. Um, I remember buying Mungo Jerry in the summertime. I remember buying Thunderclap Newman. <laughs> nice, yes. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. The first album I bought, actually with my own money, you know, like with my money that I'd earned as a as a shop girl um, on my Saturday job, was David Bowie's Aladdin Sane. Oh my god! So I had I had singles before that, and I had. Um, Maybe I had albums that people had given me because I had things for like birthday presents or Christmas presents or whatever. But but Aladdin Sane really sticks in my mind because of actually going into a shop and choosing it and buying it myself. And, yes, well, it was yeah. it's kind of a big moment really because because in those days, you know, saving up 
uh, I don't know, two ninety nine for an album or seventy nine p for the single was quite a, a, a process, and it did take a long time. So when you bought that thing, you know, a you played it to death, and also played the B side. Um, yeah, it did seem, you know, it has ensconced in my brain those kind of early, you know, things, which makes. Now, it when you see him, that um, so this I think would I think I've got it right. I think this would have been nineteen seventy three. Um, so he was still kind of touring it was the sort of ziggy stardust going into the aladdin sane kind yes. of time so this was around about the time the album came out was when he played lewis shimodian so i'm a south london girl so i went to, with my friend you know across uh, southeast london to lewisham from crystal palace which is gypsy hill where i where i was born and bred you know and went to see um went to see him there so was, yeah, um, that, was it at that stage was it absolutely was he on it at that point and the crowd had all started to sort of get the ziggy stardust it wasn't him just starting it was him in sort of full no form. no this is absolute full mania you know he'd been on so so Aladdin saying came after ziggy stardust didn't it so he'd already you know there'd already been all the mania of the the top of the pops appearance you know with him in the rainbow lizard suit and kind of hanging hanging off the shoulders you know yes. kind of you know people like my dad sort of swearing at the tv and going you know bloody poof sorry i don't know what's the world coming to etc etc well there is that classic where you can't tell if they're a girl or a boy anymore they've all got yeah what is that i mean what is he <laughs> and it's a bit like and it was like well that's a that's a member of black sabbath that is definitely a bloke <laughs> seriously you might have long hair but that's you can't you can't sort of think yeah ozzy osbourne could go either way no ozzy. i know I it's funny the heavy metal thing was like strange because it was like they're very butch yeah well sweeter kind of look like a load of kind of builders really don't they they look like they, they, they're quite they're quite kind of butch really and, and a bit bother boyish you know just but with with blue satin on and kind of long blonde hair <laughs> yes well i found that the, the same happened with punk in a way you know a couple of years ago i remember seeing it was on channel i don't know bbc4 you know the bbc top of the pops punk special and actually it was really like mostly the the front mostly it was man looked quite punkish and the people behind just looked like they were in a blues rock band who were just gone oh yeah we'll, we'll we'll play whatever you want mate as long as we get on top of the pops and have some you know beer and so they actually don't look at all punk behind them either. even the hair even the clothes all look a bit like yeah probably a few months ago you're probably in one of those kind of doing johnny be good you know and suddenly you're you're in sort yeah. Of, yeah. yes and and yeah glam was the same really they were all just like oh <laughs> They kind of, you know, it's great stories, of, you know, like the spiders from Mars all sort of go, no, we're not going to wear that stuff. And it's like, and Angie's saying, look, just put it on. They'll mm. love it. And it's like, no, I don't think so, Angie. I'm, oh, my God, face makeup, you know, no way. You know, so, um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But it worked. It was just going to happen. My goodness, you were there. I'm so envious of your Ziggy Stardust moment because, you know, that was that's a moment, isn't it? You know, it's just full on screaming. Did you manage to touch his knee? I didn't, no, I didn't. I didn't quite, quite get that close. It's still a little bit, I don't know, not, not shy, but um, held back a bit, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. So what were your, I mean, what, you, you know, because were you from a working class background, you know, was it? Yes, very much so. Probably, probably got that from my impersonation of my Cockney dad. Yeah, dad, dad's a car mechanic. 
mum was a dinner lady, um, just very regular, you know, South London working class kind of background. Yes. Roman Catholic, um, Irish heritage. So I went to Catholic school. <laughs> a class, classic convent school girl came out and became a punk rock drummer and a stripper, you know. <laughs> You got to yes, it's, it does. It just goes yeah, with it. It just goes with it, doesn't it? Yeah. So when, yeah. So when you were obviously at the late sixties, you were still a teenager at that point. I just wonder what it was like experiencing that kind of transformation of going, oh, the sixties—that's amazing. We've had the Monkees, who were brilliant, and then mm-hmm. you know Steve, you know, and the Beatles, the Stones, Jimi Hendrix, the Doors, Woodstock. But then that nineteen seventies period came when. You know, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin all died. Brian Jones had died before. You know, there was Altamont. I'm not sure if you'd have probably been that aware. But, you know, there was the Charles Manson, you know, people suddenly going, oh, this, this party started to get a bit more messy. I might leave. I just wonder what, what it was like. Or did you just kind of go straight into glam and you thought, oh, who cares about the 60s? Yeah, I think, I think, um, so I was, I became a teenager in 1968. Yes. So, right. Yeah. So, so was, and I was quite tomboyish. Um, so, but, but I, it kind of be, being sort of flat chested and underfed and skinny as hell. Um, it actually, it, it was great because that whole kind of twiggy, you know, tiny little straight up, straight down shift dresses and brightly colored tights and, yes. you know, little flat white shoes and things was actually, actually really was great, really suited me. I'm trying to think how, I mean, I certainly remember, um, you know, I remember the assassinations, obviously the Kennedys, both Kennedys. I think the second one, Bobby Kennedy, I was very young when when um, John Kennedy got assassinated in 1963. You know, I was only about seven or eight or something and I kind of knew about it. But But I think Bobby Kennedy being assassinated, you know, I was kind of, I think that was 68. Mm. And there was definitely... Um, you know, and then and then yeah, there was there was all the kind of um, all the stuff around Martin Luther King, and I don't know. The, 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 it was there were strange vibes, but then on the other hand, were things like the moon landing. I mean, I remember still watching that on TV. You know, little black and white TV. Yes. Seeing them landing on the moon. You know, so there was this feeling of immense optimism for the new decade, like we were on the verge of all this fantastic stuff, and of course. We'd had Star Trek for the last four years, and I was a fantastic, absolutely manic Star Trek fan. You know, even more as much as pop music, I really, really loved, um, loved Star Trek. And uh, so I had, yeah, there was there was this sort of sense of of um, a brave, bright, you know, a brave new world, bright new future. Um, but then, but then, yeah, once we got into the seventies. Um, it wasn't very long before we had all the kind of three-day week, rubbish on the streets, the whole country falling apart, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So by, by about 1973, everything was actually, um, I believe it or not, kind of worse than it is now. Um, <laughs> that, that's really hard to believe. But, but you know, from, from the point of view of just everything feeling like the, the, the whole country was in a complete, complete state. I mean... Mm. I mean, you know, there were there were all the things with the fuel crisis and people queuing for petrol. These things were just just happening every other week. There was there was some terrible strike or something awful happening, and and just just it felt like it felt like 
we were having power cuts all the time the bins were never emptied there was always you know this happening and that happening and some you know imminent disaster so so it did feel a very very odd time um but being you know being yeah 16 17 or whatever obviously you just kind of make your own life within all that you can sort of step go beyond it you know and 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 really this is this is some very early days of what eventually became known as punk i mean it wasn't called punk for a few years yet but but certainly by 1974 and there, there was there was this this thing happening yes. in london so did you pick up on those bands like, you know, was it Richard Strange and the Doctors of Madness and um, Dr. Feelgood? Did, did, did those bands start to sort of come into your radar? By I don't really like things like Dr. Feelgood as much too kind of R&B-ish. I mean, I was, I was by then, I don't know. I mean, I've always had, haven't really changed actually. I, I, I DJ a radio show now on Slack City Radio and I just like literally play anything from Pierre Henry to Nancy Sinatra to you know to a soundtrack from um from from lost in space <laughs> whatever I, I i i and i and i think already by that time um i just had i was just kind of quite happy to listen to glenn campbell one minute and and you know edgar varese or 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 you know ornette coleman or something the next so yes good yeah, yeah yes. God. i wasn't to be honest the whole by the time sort of Sex Pistols came along, I thought I thought that I'd completely had it with. I, I'd had no interest in, you know, rock and roll bands. I mean, as far as I was concerned, I think I think people that were got involved with the Sex Pistols divided perhaps into two camps: the people that thought the Sex Pistols were going to save rock and roll, and the people that that thought they were there to destroy it and to you know just just create some sort of art event you know in its place and at the time I was more into that kind of camp you know I didn't when I first saw the Sex Pistols it was in a tiny little club um in Finchley Road actually a disco in Finchley Road there was only about 10 or 12 people in the audience and they just made this this amazing and wonderful kind of barrage of noise and then when a couple of people at the bar sort of booed Johnny Rotten just went got off the stage and just just walked over to them you know to to um, <laughs> scream and shout at them in their faces <laughs> so I just saw it as a magnificent kind of performance art event you know it was wonderful and then by the time they were playing the Notre Dame Hall you know for the release of Anarchy in the UK um you know, signed up to a record company and all the rest of it, EMI. The the um the the whole you, you know the it felt much more like a rock and roll gig. And 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 why shouldn't it be that actually they were, you know, they were kids playing in a band that actually wanted to be rock and roll stars, you know. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Malcolm had different because Malcolm wasn't at all interested in the music and just saw it as some sort of art game. That didn't mean that the band did, you know. So, um, so I think there was always that ambivalence with 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 punk. Yeah. So this is a bit of a long-winded way of saying I wasn't actually interested in the the one hundred and oneers or the or the Doctor Feelgoods or any of the kind of stuff that, yes. that preceded it. You know, um, I was kind of aware of their Kilburn and the High Roads, wasn't it? In Jury's Back, I was kind of aware of their existence, but it wasn't 
I was too, I was at that time, you know, going off to jazz clubs or going to, you know, more interested in other sorts of things. Yeah. Well, they, so did you leave school and go to university or college by then at this point in your life? Um, so just before, before this, before the kind of, before the pre-punk <laughs> yes. year, year or two, like, so let's say if we just backtrack, 1973, um, I, I went to teach training college because that's actually what working class girls did, you know, because because your parents would want you to be a teacher. You know, that was the, the going up in the world kind of. Was step. it teaching and, or banking? Was that, you know, if you did one of those two, you were absolutely a credit to the family? or Yeah, um, or became a kind of secretary or something. But um, Magic. Yeah. I mean, I know when I did languages at A-level, my mum, I remember my mum saying, oh, you know, you could be an air hostess. Because to her, that was the epitome of achievement for a woman, you know, to be an air hostess. I mean, you can, I kind of get it, you know, nice uniforms, you get to travel the world, uh, you wear a lot of makeup. Yeah, I can see that. Yes. But I, at the time, I remember just being very cross with her, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Take your Tupperware but, uh, parties and go away, mum. I'm not, I don't want to be. Yeah, I went off <laughs> I went off to teach training college, but um, I did. I dropped out halfway through, yeah, and went to sort of. I went, oh, you know, just doing stuff, working at the ICA as a right. dog's body, putting up exhibitions and running things. Yes, those days you were just allowed to run. You didn't have to have a kind of. You didn't have to have a sort of, you know master's degree in arts management or anything you just like you were just hanging around and someone would say that so that's how I ended up doing, being involved with the come transmissions Robin Gristle you know the prostitution exhibition and various other magnificent things that happened at the ICA in 1976 because yeah. someone would just say oh um yeah go and help them put that exhibition up you know or <laughs> take some tickets in the cinema or oh let's put a gig on after the theatre hey let's have this new band called the clash you know yes so, oh my god things happened there was no, no one mentioned health and safety did they risk assessments oh, and excel yeah. spreadsheets did they there was not an excel spreadsheet to be found there was an excel spreadsheet to be found you know but i mean it did all come crashing down because with the prostitution exhibition you know there was suddenly the kind of these are the records of civilization front pages in the evening standard and the or even news or whatever and the oh you know the daily mail and 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 then all the questions in the house of commons about this is like what are the what is the it wasn't called the arts council then oh no it was it was the arts council of great britain rather than ace arts council University. right so there was like you know people people got hauled up you know, to to answer par to Parliament to kind of justify why public money was going on um, pornography and strippers and tampons and nasty noise. <laughs> yes, God. So that was was that quite were you was that quite a um, a surprise when you sort of found yourself ensconced in that world? Um, I don't think it was. I mean, in that way, the. You know, again, it's another characteristic of of being a certain age, being young, isn't it? You just kind of whatever's happening, you just kind of go, "Oh, right, that's what's happening today." You know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't necessarily, you know, you're quite intrigued by odd things, but um, you don't necessarily um, analyze or or you know, critique or or place it in any sort of context. It's just like, "Oh, right, okay, that's what's going on now. Let's do that. Yeah, that's good." Um, and then years later, 
you realise just how extraordinary some things were, you know, like the juxtaposition, the, the fact that we had the prostitution exhibition going on with, with Come Transmissions, who then morphed into Throbbing Gristle. Meanwhile, you know, in another gallery, I can't remember the exact timings, but pretty soon or after there was um, the infamous um, an oak tree, you know, the Michael Craig Martin, the glass of water that went with the label that says this is an oak tree, which is one of the, it's, it's considered the first major piece of conceptual art, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so you know, lots of, um, oh, Carl, Carl Andre's bricks, they weren't at the ICA actually, but they were at the, um, the Whitechapel. Yes, you know, the, they were very famous, weren't they, the bricks? Yeah. Oh, that that yeah. melted a lot of minds, didn't it? My goodness. But there's also, I mean, the great thing with it, that, period of your life or can be is there's a sort of a happy I don't know a naivety and enthusiasm and certain arrogance as well which often when I speak to people often as you get older you know it just it just isn't you can't somehow conjure that mindset again because it's like there's too oh, no. you know so it's all fresh and beautiful and you're sort of like just do it it's all going to end so well and then you realize and you don't have any kind of imposter syndrome of any other. I think those things tend to come later where you go, oh, should I be doing this? You know, am I qualified to do this? Um, is it all right for me to do this? You know, whereas when you're when you're 21, you just kind of go, yeah, I'll do, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. You know. <laughs> yes, we haven't we haven't found that inner critic who's kind of makes you feel, oh dear, I've just thought about it too much. I've frozen. I've frozen. Maybe, maybe it's just some maybe maybe certain eras have it more than others. I mean, because you know, like like with playing drums, it was it was the way that happened is is just meeting some people who just said, oh, you can be our drummer. And I said, oh, I can't play drums and I don't have a drum kit. And they said, oh, that doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> by the following week, I was the drummer. You know, so, so so during that period, then, so what happens in the next phase then, sort of as we trundle up to the sort of more mid to late 70s? Were you well, still at the... So the ICA obviously doesn't. Well, we all we all got we all got sacked basically, or we we got sacked or or just kind of quietly left one after the other after the um, prostitution exhibition. Basically, the, the person, the wonderful director of the ICA, Ted Little, who ran it like an arts lab. He'd previously run, run I think it was Birmingham Arts Lab. He'd run. I'm not 100 percent sure, but anyway, um, it'll all be in my memoir, darling, which is coming out later this year. Um, and I'll have the facts right for that. <laughs> so, so Ted Little got basically ended up, you know, being forced to resign. Let's put it that way, because because of all this, um, oh, you know, Mary Kelly's dirty nappies in one gallery and and cozy funny tutus used tampons in the other. You know, it's all a bit much. So, so he lost his job, and then and then Mike Lee, who was running the theatre that I was helping there, you know, putting on clash gigs and things like that. He left, you know, so basically one after another, uh, Ted Polhemus, who was running the, programming the film and running the special events, he left, you know, everybody, everybody, uh, all these kind of visionaries ended up leaving. So yeah, it was a kind of, a bit of a, a feeling of an end of an era, so. Was that so, Mike Lee of Abigail's party fame? Oh yeah, no, it's it's actually I'm probably mispronouncing the name, but it's Mike Lay, I think. Right. It's Mike Lay, the famous photographer, famous rock photographer, as opposed to Mike Lee, the famous film director. Although Mike Lee, the film director, was also involved with the ICA. It was part um, we put him on as part of an ethnographic film festival. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So 
so this is so this is so this is now like late 76 so there's all these things happening and meanwhile the we've had the um by december by by the beginning of december so, so much happened just in a few months you know all these big kind of cultural moments by yes. by the beginning of december we had the sort of infamous bill grundy thing on the tv yes. so that, that what that did is overnight the whole country learnt this word punk because every you know the mirror the you know the mail all of these newspapers had punk rock punk yobs you know on the front page so this word that nobody had before this word that previously meant kind of something sort of esoteric alternative new york things like you know richard helen boydoids or whatever or television this 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 word was now suddenly being applied to you know all and sundry on the on the london um yes. and elsewhere manchester scene so public enemy number one and then they got so really interesting. So 1977 felt quite um I, you know, I felt, I felt 1977, you know, there was, there was a lot of kind of nastiness. That's when people were beating up punks on the street. And, you know, you had all these newspaper headlines, Sex Pistol number two, knifed on the tube, you know, and all that kind of stuff. A lot of, a lot of people being beaten up, a lot of just anger and aggression. And, and this is, this is when we had re the really what you can think of as the kind of um, cartoon punks became, punk became nothing more than, I think, and became quite masculinist. I mean, it had been a yes. really kind of quite female-led thing, you know, with Vivian Westwood and Jordan and and so many of, so many female musicians and people doing things. Um, and then suddenly all the images in 1977 are, are suddenly, you know, boys with razor cut hair and like chains and leather jackets and things, which would, that was always like there too, as part of the aesthetic. But this now became the whole aesthetic. I think it became very male and very, you know, kind kind of, you know, it's almost like punk believed the stories about punk. And and in a way, the epitome of that, the figurehead of that, is Sid Vicious, yes. who just, you know, believed believed the stories about himself if you like you know lived up to the to the image um, yes, it was it was a tragic story did you meet members of um you know the, the pistols and the hangers-on yeah i knew some of them pretty well yes yes yeah. what was sid yeah. like did you manage to meet sid and have a conversation I didn't, um my my um boyfriend and bandmate in not long after that Marco Marco Broni from um that the, the I formed Rima Rima with him and other people not just the two of us but um Marco and Sid were best friends Marco's kind of quite big and broad and he always looked years older even when he was 18 he looked like he was definitely you know pushing 30 some just something about he'd look like a proper stocky man rather than a skinny boy so there was something if you went to kind of Louise's club or to the to a pistols gig or whatever there would be Sid and Marco together, and they just both always look quite frightening. So I tend to sort of, oh, like, like if they're over there, I'll, I'll just move this way around, you know. <laughs> and of course, Marco's, you know, as cuddly as as, as cuddly as a kitten, and 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 you know, he's he's very very gentle sort of person. And, um, um, and it's interesting actually that when I got to know Marco, by then Sid was dead, but um, but Marco 
you know, convinced me that Sid was actually a really nice person before, you know, back in the day. Yes. Um, that he was just sort of playing at a certain kind of image. And then it was almost like that, that took over. I mean, um, nobody that I know from that original Sex Pistols crowd, um, like, like all the, you know, the Marcos, Marco and Susie, who I knew pretty well, and, you know, all of that, none of the, that crowd, to my knowledge, actually really ever went, like, like once Glenn Matlock left and Sid Vicious joined, I don't think a, a lot of the original crowd kind of just were no longer that interested. Yes, yeah. it was kind of, and um, yes, I suppose when people met Nancy, they probably thought, hmm, not sure, this could be quite hard work. She's never going to do the washing up and make a cup of tea, is she? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because you kind of go, oh, well, don't speak ill of the dead, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I, I like a lot of people, I just, I just took an instant dislike to her, you know, and it, yeah. Uh, it was probably anyway. quite hard, hard to warm. But I guess, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I've done quite a lot of interviews with, um, I suppose, the New York sort of punk scene and various people around. Yeah. And it seems really different to the, the London scene because it was such, you know, there wasn't a uniform, there wasn't a look, there wasn't a, a particular attitude. It was so, you know, you had the talking heads, you know, you, when you look at yeah. them, David Byrne and Tina and... You know, yeah. I mean, you have a look at Blondie. There wasn't this kind of, you've got to all start, you know. But, 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 but that's how it was in the London scene, in, in, in the whole, in like 75 through, through 76. It was only, that's what I'm saying, is there was this massive shift. If, if, you, if, if you kind of think like mid-1976, you know, there was, there was people like me with like, like long hair, you know, and... Um, I mean, I had, I, I, I had, I used to wear like fifties dresses, but with like say seventies style um, platform shoes, you know. But then with loads of kind of dishevelled, you know, hair pulled up in a kind of wild beehivey kind of thing, and loads of over the top makeup and things. So, so it was a very cartoony sort of supermarket of style kind of approach. Yes, and. And you know, if you looked around the room at one of those early gigs, you'd you'd or events, whatever, you know, you'd just see lots of different people dressed in lots of different ways, you know, and 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 um, the identikit punk, that thing of the as we as we were saying earlier about the kind of leather jacket, razored hair, you know, all the thing that's in all the all the all those books about the Roxy, you know, mm. which is actually early seventy seven, not. No, 76. By then you've got, yeah, bin liners. Everybody's in black. There isn't a, you know, any colour. You know, everybody's in black. And all the bin liners and all the kind of safety pins. And, and it's just become a, yeah, it's become a uniform. Yes. And it ceased to be interesting when that happens. Yes, it stopped. It's interesting because I did an interview with a, the singer or the main person from the adverts. And I remember him saying that he, when he saw his audience, his heart kind of sunk and went, Mm. I'm not sure if I really want to do this anymore. You know, they were just like, oh my God. And it was, you know, like they all just looked like Sid Vicious and it was like, mm, perhaps this could be my last gig because it's just not what yeah. I signed up for. It's not what we wanted, you know, that everyone was going to look like this. Whereas it's kind of, in, you know, I mean, I know it's it's easy to be able to romanticise it, but, you know, I suppose with New York, you know, you had that Andy Warhol scene and you had mm. Basquiat and you had a lot of other people like, 
Joey Arias and the whole drag scene as well. So it did seem to sort of just keep it kind of, and then you had the stray cats and the rock cats and, you know, the cramps came. And so there was this kind of interest in sort of musical world, whereas, you know, I never ever want to hear if the kids, if the kids are united, they'll never be divided because <laughs> it really is the longest three and a half minutes of my life. I've not been a dentist, dentist yeah, without an anesthetic really. So, um, cause it's like, oh my God. Yeah. How did they get away with it? Um, so yeah, it was terrible really. So then what, what happens to you at that stage where you think, oh my goodness, the party's nearly going, I need to move somewhere spiritually? Um, well, I mean, I was very involved with the early ants. I mean, I played, I played, I played drums, supposedly played drums at the very beginning, although at that point I didn't have a drum kit. <laughs> Um, and then I did have a drum kit and I learned some songs and rehearsed with um with Andy Warren bass player and and Bid who was the other singer with Stuart who then changed his name to Adam um and of course and then then Bid formed the monochrome set so so it's like the answer the monochrome set came out of the same little group of people that were all rehearsing together so um yeah yeah so so because the um because the ants took off and I was very involved with that, you know, the, the, and they, they were trying to do something different. Although I, I really relate to what you're saying about TV Smith looking out at the crowd. Cause I mean, I used to sort of, you know, stand at the side of the stage for the early ants gigs and I'd look out and just, uh, you know, half the time I'd just think, Oh God, you know, like gobbing people, you know, and people throwing beer around and things just thinking, hi, hi. Um, so it was really interesting that, at the, you know, a year, a couple of years later, at the point where, you know, Adam went into all the kind of piratey stuff and the brightly coloured stuff, it was kind of like, actually being kind of like desperate to do something like that for quite a while because he was just sort of so, you know, so much wanted to break away from the kind of gobbing. Gobbing, <laughs> the gobbing masses, yes. It's hard to... Hard to want to keep that one going in your life. Just please go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the, and so Marco, because those two form the kind of nucleus of Adam Ant, don't they? They are the... Well, there was the new ants. Before that, the, the I was involved with the, the first, you know, the old ants. I mean, this is what was bizarre because, because, um, because the same thing happened to me twice over with basically... Because I, I was living with Andy Warren, bass player in the original ants, um, and and then yes, we'd been playing in this other band with with Bid also as a singer, and um, and Adam actually disappeared. He was actually in hospital, but then that's a whole other story, and we didn't realise it at the time. But but Stuart disappeared and came back, renamed himself as Adam, and then he spent a long time trying to persuade me that Andy had to come and join this new band called the Ants with him rather than stay with Bid. Yeah. So. So indeed, that's what happened, you know, and the rest is history. So Andy and Adam formed the Ants. And then a couple of years later, um, when there was all the kerfuffle, when the Ants kind of split up and, or well, Malcolm McLaren was managing them and he basically, depending on whose version of the story you believe, um, either he sacked Adam from his own band or Adam left and kept the name. I mean, you know, there's different versions of the story, but then... Yes. Oh, what it came down to was that Adam and the group separated um and at that point Marco and I were playing in um, um our band Rima Rima which which had kind of run from sort of mid-1978 to 
um, to the end of 1979. So at this point, Marco was getting very fed up with Remarine because he was finding it a bit dirty or whatever. And, and whenever we got reviewed, we got we seemed to get kind of lumped in with people like Joy Division, which which Marco made Marco very cross. <laughs> <laughs> He was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in something that people compare to Joy Division. I, I want to be in something that people compare to Roxy Music. Right. <laughs> Rebel, you know. So he was desperate to kind of do something a bit more, a bit more poppy. And at that exact moment, you know, we have the same scenario again. Up, come, up comes Adam, who's then once again trying to persuade me that that um that you know Marco needs to to you know come and join up with him and form a new band so that, <laughs> that scenario happened to me twice with 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 Adam telling me that you know to basically give me your boyfriend <laughs> again Jesus I mean man that's too much Did, but with Rima Rima you have got yeah. kind of quite a, you went into the studio and recorded quite a lot quite a lot of stuff didn't you we only we are actually um we only properly recorded um, three tracks, two of which got released on the original um, Wheel in the Roses EP, and then the B-side of the EP was all live stuff. There was this other track called Entry, which um, which nobody would release because it was blasphemous. So, yes. there we go. Um, so, <laughs> um, when it eventually got released last year, you know, by uh, 4AD. Yes. Um, yeah, so so this album that got really no, not last year. I've lost a couple of years. I think it was two. Oh, me. I, I think that's know. nineteen. They did. Is it twenty nineteen? Um, yeah. Reflections, which has the feedback song, and ends with entry. So it's, is that all your catalogue there? So the so yes. Yeah, so the thing about fond reflections is that um, Gary Asquith, uh, Reba Reba singer, um, uh, Gary Gary um, had actually been on a mission for for quite a few years to sort of tormenting 4AD to get this to get this to get something released and basically Gary gathered up from from any of us that had anything you know kind of cassette <laughs> cassette recordings from rehearsals or from live gigs and completely um cleaned them up and remastered them so so it's a slight I mean, when, when we released Fond Reflections, it was with this kind of tagline of, oh, the missing album, you know, released after 40 years. Well, it's not really anything of the sort. It's it's just a hodgepodge of things that have been pulled together somehow from from things that we did on a TAC 4 track down in a tiny basement in Portugal. Yes. Or things that we did in Halligan's rehearsal studio on Holloway Road or whatever, you know, that it's, it's all stuff done on, you know, um, crappy machines but it's in, but it is interesting because you wouldn't believe you might believe actually but you know it's like 30 40 years i used to think it was like 25 to 30 but no it is even longer sometimes where the amount of compilations and collections that are coming out from people quite small record labels like there's optic nerve fire engine no fire station cloudbury obviously there's cherry red records and and people but they're all sort of collecting bands who never got the album together put out you know a couple of eps did a few flexi discs did a few cassettes through it you know the band breaks up they obviously think i've had enough put it in the box ignore it for sort of three or four decades and think 
actually, I might like to put that out. And it's it's been, you know, it's kind of fascinating that so many bands have done exactly what you guys have done, which is, um, I think archiving is really important. It's a bit like getting your teeth sorted out in later life, isn't it, really? Yeah. Getting the root yeah, canal feeling. I'm really pleased it came out. It's really lovely that it's there, you know, it's just... Um... It's just kind of quite funny that it is all these dribs and drabs from, you know, the because actually the only thing that was properly recorded were, were those original three tracks, which was the Rima Rima into feedback song and then entry. Yes. And did and as a band or as 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 members scattered around the place, did you all sort of have a couple of I mean, this was pre-Zoom, I guess, wasn't it? Did you, but did you kind of have much communication with each other through that process, which felt quite bonding? Um, I'm laughing because um, we did all meet up once 10 years ago, but um, we were interviewed by Resonance FM. So we were actually all in the same room. And then we went out and had lunch together afterwards. And that was the first and only time that the five of us have got together. Um, but we do, we, and there's various factions. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, with bands? There's, there's people that are close to each other and have stayed in contact and others that haven't, but, but, but the, the thread's kind of quite weird and convoluted. Um, I mean, I, I, I've, I wasn't close to Mark Cox, the keyboard player, um, synth player. We actually kind of we had quite a lot of kind of friction between us when I was actually in the band, you know, when, when we were in the band years and years ago. Um, but when we when we met up like 30 years later, you know, which was sort of 10 years ago, we immediately really hit it off. And I think it's because we've both in later life gone very kind of away from rock and roll and gone quite we're both kind of quite into quite kind of esoteric things and occult kind of things and alternative things and buddhism and spiritualism and you know um stuff you know yeah. stuff like that so 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 we suddenly kind of felt like we had a lot in common so we've become really good friends over in recent years since yeah. like 18 10 years ago so that was interesting um i've always kept tabs on marco um because when we were going out together, when we split up, um, his pet was kind of quite a funny story. I was living at his house. I stayed living there after we split up at his parents' house. And um, they always still kind of saw me as Marco's girlfriend, even though I wasn't. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if he was particularly happy about that. But, um, but it was this very odd thing. You know, I stayed, for, I stayed like the family, almost like the daughter-in-law that I never quite was. Yes. So when I met my now husband, which was just not long after that, Foz, uh, another monochrome secretarist, uh, another person of the same, you know, little group of musicians. Anyway, when I, when I started going out with Foz, you know, that he... Um, he, he, you know, also became friends with, with the Peronis, with Marco's parents. And then Marco's, when we had our first child, Marco's, Marco's dad is the godfather, because, you know, every child should have an Italian godfather, let's face it. Yes, I know. Of course. So, so, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm in regular contact with Marco's parents, you know, so I always know what Marco's, what he's doing, which is quite funny. <laughs> um, yeah, and then and then Gary, yeah, Gary kind of Gary kind of organizes things and communicates with everyone basically. Right. But but um, 
not none of them i mean i i don't know i i use i use things like zoom and oh i don't know you know and i yeah i i feel i feel i'm i'm definitely an online sort of person but but most of them don't answer emails and things you know they're still it's like if you want to get hold of one of them the best thing to do is to pick up a phone you know? yes it is it's true did it feel a bit strange though because obviously during that period and i guess you would have seen very early susan the banshees as well as various they were part of they were part they they were part of the same i mean i already knew them because the ants and the banshees did loads of stuff together yes the banshees so yeah no, they were part of the same circle and um Mark, Mark Cox in particular was a very close friend of the Banshees and of course Marco had played in the first session of the Banshees. Yes. Yes, I know the Banshees were, were, we were very, you know, very much, very intertwined with them as well. Yeah. Yes. Was it kind of amazing though when Adam and his aunts just were like, wow, you have become the biggest band going straight in at number one, you know. The it was very odd. It was very, I mean, I mean, yeah. Um, I must admit, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I went through all sorts of stuff with, with, you know, with Marco leaving Rima Rima and feeling like that, that, you know, feeling sad for that really. Um, and then, yeah. And then we kind of, we kind of carried on going out with each other um, for quite a long time after the ants became the big famous thing that they, that they became but it was really odd because he was for a lot of that time he was actually on tour say to America for for just months on end so it's kind of quite hard to know if you're I mean you're kind of officially going out with someone but but there's, yes. there's, plenty, there's plenty of people um you know friends who who actually kind of didn't kind of realize that we were we were ever together or that we we were still together at that time because you wouldn't actually see us together you know yes it must have been very strange so then as the 80s progressed on i mean 79 david thatcher gets in and then we have the falkland war and then we have i don't know you know the minor strike green and common then there's the sort of um the Battle of the Beanfield, that's a slightly different cultural moment, isn't it? But, you know, the SWP, it's all very angsty, isn't it? We're really going back on strike. What was the what was the kind of early 80s like for you as you, you know, as the punk scene had obviously changed quite radically and, and with any scene, you know, people start disappearing or dying and things like that mm -hmm. happen. So what was, what? how did you navigate that next bit? Um, well, I played in a few different bands that she, me and Marco and Andy had a kind of band for a while that was a, it was called the Weekend Swingers um, because it was it was a sort of off duty band. It was we were all doing other things, but so so by then um, Marco was in the new ants and Andy had left the old ants, but but formed or rejoined or whatever the monochrome set. Um, and I'd just done a record with Genesis Peorage and. Um, but anyway, so we did this, we did this kind of occasional band called the Weekend Swingers. And then that turned into something more like a real band. I mean, Marco and Andy didn't carry on with it because they were too busy with their proper bands. But I stayed with Jay, the singer, Jay Strongman and um, Peanuts Paul Style. And we called ourselves the L Train. So we were kind of punkabilly, rockabilly. Right. Yeah. So I did that for a kind of, I don't know, a year. I, I then 
we did some interesting things. We played the Scala Cinema with 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 some really interesting kind of uh, with with the film Crazy Mama and I I don't know. We did some really nice things, but then but then we just started doing like like gigging. The the one thing that I'd never done before because I'd always been in these kind of bands that were much more interested in doing kind of quite esoteric and interesting venues or unusual things or whatever but suddenly I'm in a band where people just kind of want to play gigs you know so we did like the the bridge house in Canning Town you know right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's you know the oi venue you know? um and I just remember I did get to a point where I just thought this this, this is just not this is not not what I want to do you know no so Oh, no. no. And what was no. your experience like in, was it Psychic TV? You were sort of, did you, yeah. did you last in that band, in the band very long? Well, I was there at the very beginning, but I, a little, a lot, I was very close friends with Genesis and I'd done this, this record on Industrial. Um, and then the record was me, me, Jen and Alex Ferguson. And then we started talking about forming a band and um, there was just little alarm bells rang. There was something I kind of felt would not be kind of quite right about this. Um, so I didn't join what became Psychic TV at the beginning, but then I did a couple of years later in 1984. Well, normally when we're young, our alarm bells aren't that great. So what, what, what sort of rung, what was, what was, what was giving you the slightly mm, not sure about this? Because normally we do these things and then with experience, we don't. Well, I was in my mid twenties by now. I think just getting a bit, I don't know. I'd just known Jen for a long time. I felt very close to him. I really liked him, but I, I suppose I was kind of picking up on some of the ways he talked about other people or the way he kind of blanked or cut people out if, if he felt a certain way about people and, um and I wanted to just retain the friendship I suppose I think I wanted to sort of keep keep that special relationship and it not be tarnished um I don't know if I thought this through quite so consciously as all that but somewhere in my head was this awareness that it could go horribly wrong and when I did eventually join you know it did actually go horribly wrong I mean and and it uh, you know the, the the version of psychic tv that I was in Jen described as his dream band with all his best friends. It had Monte Cazazar over from America. It had Hilmar on Hilmerson from Iceland. It had me, who had always told everyone I'd listen that I was his favourite ever drummer and that he'd always wanted to be in a band with me, blah, blah, blah. So, so he'd put this together and then it all exploded because the thing about it is, is you can't just invite all your best friends who are the people you supposedly really admire and see as your peers, as your equals, um, and then, you know, just kind of treat them like like jobbing band members or session musicians or whatever. So there was a massive, there was all sorts of things happened. Yeah, it's a very long story, but 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 the upshot is Monty just ran away. Monty ran away back to America to get to get out of things. Um, and then Hilmar and I both ended up being eventually being sort of sacked um and and became you know persona non gratis so so yeah it did end in tears so oh. I, was I did <laughs> I did make it up again kind of but always you know kind of 
stayed wary. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm just, but, but, but you know, it's a lot. I mean, it's for yeah, and I think a lot of people have, who've worked for Genesis Peorage, with you know, there's just 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 a million and one stories out there. But but you know, I mean, I mean, quite. Uh, yeah, most people like me didn't get credited for co-writing things. Didn't get credit. Don't even get credited for playing on a lot of. Them. I mean, there's I keep you know there's records out there. There's psychic TV records floating around. I'm always coming across them. And I'm sort of you know they've not even got the right lineup written on the back. You know. Right. Like so what albums were you were you on that um, went into the studio and recorded? One, the big one that we did with loads and loads of money, uh, we when we recorded it, it was called the Starlit Mire, and it was the God Star album. It was recorded at DJM in early 1985 with with lots of input from from you know record like this was suddenly the big moment for um, for Jen, you know, sort of having that record company money and having managers and this that and the other. Um, but because of all sorts of disputes about ownership and about this and that and the other, that album got shelved, but it got released about four years later under the name Allegory and Self. So, right. So that's yeah. not been a good experience, was it? No, but, you know, it's life. It's all right. I can't, I can't, but I mean, the thing about it is, yeah, I kind of, I kind of knew it all somehow in, in, in the, deepest part of my mind or my soul I kind of I kind of knew that it would be not not a good idea and I did it anyway but it was fine glad I did because we had some lovely you know before things started to fall apart we we had some amazing times we did a sort of fantastic event at the Hammersmith Ballet called um a uh, fabulous feast of flowering light which basically just did a whole day and a whole night um, that was just like some sort of um, 80s take on the 60s happening. That's Psychic TV playing and Virgin Prunes. Um, Bjork's first band, Kirkler. Yes. With Bjork and Einar's first band. Um, and loads of other bands, but but also the Mantis Dance Company, um, with, with um, whose who set was designed by Derek Jarman. And then we had loads of films by Derek Jarman, loads of films by John Mabry. We had Kathy Acker over from New York reading her, um, re reading from, from, from her, her book. Yes, absolutely. My God, that, 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 you must have felt like you were on some cultural zeitgeist at this stage. Well, again, it's like when these things happen, it's like, I mean... I mean, I knew Derek anyway from 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 Jubilee and and onwards, but um, I don't know. These people are just your mates, aren't they? You don't really, you don't kind of go, ooh, you know, I'm yes. surrounded by genius, but you are surrounded by genius. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, it's, um, um, it's it's yeah, it's kind of different when it's when everybody's just your peers and your friends, and and um, it's only it's only perhaps you know again like the looking back on those six months at the ICA when so many extraordinary things all happened all at once you know and again the, just thinking about this this you know this the fabulous feast of flowering light uh, and the amount and the people that were in that room you know I mean obviously none of us knew that like Björk was going to become Björk she yes. was just Björk 
just little pixie girl jumping around on the stage. Um, nobody knew that Derek Jarman was going to become an absolute icon. I mean, we all loved him and loved his work, but we didn't know that the rest of the world was going to agree with us within a few years. Yes. God, that's amazing. I mean, that's interesting. Just to say about this thing about, about what you think of people and appreciation. I mean, I was having this conversation with someone the other day when I was talking about Derek Jarman's work, and I was kind of laughing about the fact that that the BFI quite rightly have now have all his films up on the, B, you know, you can subscribe to the BFI website, blah, 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 and can watch all his films. You know, he was just so derided by so many people. If you, all of the bad reviews of Jubilee have disappeared off of the internet, you know, because people, um, people are embarrassed, quite rightly so. So they should be, you know, because, because he, I mean, everybody slagged him off. It was just like, they just, was just seen as a kind of rank amateur, just like, you know, messing around with, with, with his Super 8 cameras and things. You know, this is not proper filmmaking. He was actually not really respected um, by very many people outside of his immediate circle for a long time. You know, it took quite a few years. I think probably perhaps by you know, a bit more by the, by the time Caravaggio was made, but, but, you know, and obviously by the time he died, he's now elevated on some sort of pedestal, but, 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 you know, it's just interesting to remember that actually wasn't always that way, you know, no. and of course now everybody claims that they always loved Derek Jarman, and you kind of think, ah, come on, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, same, it's the same with David Bowie, because you know, everyone always goes, oh, my favourite album is Low, but everyone hated it. And there's a great review of Charles Shah Murray, who really hammers it. He obviously thinks, right, that's it. I'm going to, I'm nailing this one into the, you know, into the ground. And, and there it is, you know, him absolutely. Yeah. You know, that everyone goes, oh, yes, David Bowie's Low, low album. It's like, I can't remember, you know, it's a, and it's the same way. I love John Peel, and it's funny because at the time, you know, it was the worst thing you could do for your social life because I didn't know anybody who liked John Peel and didn't like the music John Peel played. And then the moment he died, it was like, oh my god, no. and it was like, where were you lot? You know, I didn't realize you were into the Bundu boys back then, and you know, the very first uh, Public Enemy, and you know, and the Smiths, and all those kind of bad. I know the Smiths are a bit tricky now, but you know, there was the time when you know it was just like tumbleweed you know John Peel it's oh no but do you like the latest Genesis album you know or Phil Collins I think mm, not really but I'm gonna go and see the <laughs> boys anyway yes I know death death makes you very popular doesn't it um but yes I mean it's a weird one so then as as the as so mid 80s then so you're you're in sort of heavy band stuff aren't you do you then as we navigate towards the anti-poll tax league what happens for the rest of the decade oh well then i have babies that's what happens i'm, I'm to be found on a i'm to be found on a sofa with a baby up my jumper for the next however many years because so i had i had three children had have still have they're very they're, they're, they're very big now <laughs> so I had three children like three years apart so 1986 1989 1992 so although there was a bit of emerging in it's basically like like you've got a two-year-old and then you're pregnant again you know so so actually it was kind of um a pretty sort of straightforward <laughs> pretty straightforward like seven or eight years of 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 not not doing an enormous amount no yeah well yeah um, well i, mean, I, I, I say not, i mean that's not, that, that's 24 you know, seven but but and i also moved from london to brighton so i um kind kind of 
I just lost contact with a lot of people. I mean, this is obviously pre-social media and pre-mobile phones and all that sort of thing. So, like, once once you move and people don't have your landline number anymore, no, or your address, um, it's very easy to lose contact with people. So I did, um, yeah. I just did move into, yeah, moving down to Brighton as well. I just moved into a very different sort of, you know, the whole thing of of, of um, hanging out on the beach with the with little ones. So yes. making different sort of friends. And then when I kind of, as I say, there was a little bit of emerging, like say between baby number two and baby number three in the early 1990s, I, I got... Um, I got into kind of contemporary dance and sort of um, re-revived my interest in performance art. And I, I, I started working with a choreographer called Ginny Farman um, in, a, in a, a troupe called Disco Sister. Excellent. Um, um, and, and I did um, various, you know, performances at places like the Zap Club where I would be, you know, painted yellow and hanging from a, trapeze or a rope or something in the middle of the middle of the dance floor or um or wrapped in I don't know wearing some sort of rubber baby grow kind of thing and, and wearing pointy hats and doing Pina Bausch inspired you know kind of stuff like this so when did um yes, <laughs> Yeah, so when did you start to become more fascinated in dance? Did this happen during that sofa period or was you, were you always interested? I was in always it? there and actually dance, I, I worked as a kind of cabaret dancer, go-go dancer and cabaret dancer all the time that I was in bands. I never had to sort of sign on as other people did and sort of get dole money because I always made money. Right. Yeah, so I did that kind of dance um, throughout the throughout the 1970s and and but then but then also kind of going for contemporary dance classes and things like that and and um and always had a kind of interest in um in that but I didn't really like the kind of po-faced sort of um you know ultra serious contemporary dance so when I met Ginny it was fantastic because she and, and she introduced me to kind of peen about to the Pina Bausch sort of dance theatre you know the kind of more ironic postmodern style of dance theatre um which 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 I really love so so that was like wow this is this whole world that I'm really interested in so that became that became what I what I did for a while and yeah yes. then the then there was a then there was another baby and then that stopped and then once I kind of um escaped the sofa again um for the third and last time um I well it was funny actually because I was I was at a contemporary I was at what, a contemporary dance class it may well have been one of Ginny's and this guy called Phil Phil Gunderson um said to me oh you know you should come along and I'm running these sort of mime workshops and I'm like oh Jesus no you know Marcel I'm climbing out of glass boxes and why would I be interested in mime anyway he 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 kept um he wouldn't take no for an answer and he kept inviting me to these things and then eventually I did go for this week-long workshop it turned out that it was with somebody called Thomas Liebhart who's actually a massively big important person in kind of American physical theatre I didn't know that at the time I was ignorant as anything I just knew I was going to something because and then on the first day we were told to bring in a poem and then we did 
we did this whole thing of deconstructing the poem with physical action. I brought in a Sylvia Plath poem and it was just amazing. And I thought, who knew that this word mime, who knew that this could be what it is? You know, it's just basically, I mean, now we call it physical theatre or visual performance or we don't tend to use that word. But so, so that was the whole, this is kind of mid, you know, by the mid 1990s, I just discovered this wonderful world of, of you know, alternative theatre making and again it wasn't as if it was completely new because when I worked at the ICA as I was saying earlier about Mike Lay and the theatre um, we put on things like Lumiere and Sun and Hot Peaches um, um, The People Show you know various other yes. incubus yeah incubus um, Crystal Theatre the Saint so we, so we did we did put on all these these unusual kind of theatre companies that were making work that that was a, a world away from regular literary theatre you know non-text-based theatre if you want to call it that physical I know we've got all sorts of different names for it haven't we you know it's uh, physical and device theatre whatever so that was the big discovery of the mid sort of 1990s really. Um, did you, did you by any chance get into things like I know this is a little bit more new agey but did you get into things like the Gabrielle Roth kind of five rhythms? Yeah I did do five rhythms yeah I did five rhythms and chakra dance, yeah, all of that stuff as well. You, you can't, you can't escape, you can't escape it in Brighton. It's, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, I did, and um, yes, I really like all that stuff as well. And contact improvisation, you know, I did a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, so this became the world that I inhabited. You know, this kind of alternative dance, stroke performance art, stroke physical theatre kind of world. Yes. Um, Yay! And that became that became um, very much my life. Um, and you know, eventually working with a company that mostly made street theatre and site-specific performance, a company called Ragroof that I was kind of with for oh, I don't know, fifteen years. We 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 folded um, about three years ago, just before the pandemic, actually. Um, but I retained one part of the work which was the um sort of social and popular um interactive dance stuff hence the rag roof tea dances so I've kind yes. of had kept a bit of it but but yeah the great big um we you know we we stopped doing the great big site-specific shows in and and to be honest i i, I got to a stage where i just felt i'm i'm too old and world weary to be doing shows that involve 14 people and a whole, you know, and truckloads of kit into a disused something or other. Or a, we did one show, the last big show we did was called Bridges and, and it was done in um, multi-storey car parks. And, you know, we got to a point, there was one too many, one too many um, get-ins that involved a car park full of like, you know, um, dangerous electricity wires. <laughs> <laughs> something and and um pigeon shit oh in fact probably dead pigeons not even pigeon dead pigeons broken glass syringes you know so so the joys of um site-specific theater making in strange venues is 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 exciting that it was for a while lost its charm eventually yes well there is interesting isn't it everything one does there's that honeymoon phase and then there's the sort of oh this is nice and then there's that moment where, yeah, it's good to know when to um, have that conversation with it, with either other people or yourself and walk away, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you just kind of, when it's, 
I mean, it's, it's when the actual shows, the things like that, when the shows are happening and, and then you kind of talk to audience members afterwards, you just think, yes, it's all worth it. It's all worth it because it's just so wonderful and, and you've just created this marvellous thing, you know, but, but it's taken, you know, it took like, like a year of funding applications to get together the amount of money that was needed to make it happen. And then it takes all these negotiations with people like councils about whether you can or can't use this or that building and then it takes like the whole thing of casting and dealing with people and you know dealing with actors and oh I don't know it just goes on and on and yeah you you you, you it, it's yeah it's sort yes. of more exciting to think about than to actually do a lot of the time. <laughs> well I think it's also the end bit where you know everyone's going and you're sort of possibly with a brush and dustbin cleaner clearing up some real rubbish because you think oh I I better just I just feel too guilty to walk away but I better clean that I better just tidy that and I'll perhaps go back the next day and just check everything's definitely right you know just for your own peace of mind and no one else does do they and you're thinking I'm not sure if I'm really happy about this anymore or all sort of yeah getting the laminator out sort of going no one yes we need signs we need good signs I can't be you know and you're laminating at three in the morning and no one else has even thought about it and I don't know sometimes it just sometimes gets to you so that well, got to me sometimes so yeah there you go yeah. you just there's only so many lam laminating things so what have you been doing in the last say five years and then during the and obviously the pandemic did is this when you did, is this when you decided you're going to write your memoirs um, I was already writing it, but I never had time to actually um, actually finish it off. So yeah, that that was that you know that first serious lockdown was when I actually knuckled down and, and pulled together. And also, some bits of it have been published as little bits of journalism or short stories or something in other other places. So um, so it's a question of pulling some things together that that were already done, and then writing other bits, and then making it into a whole cohesive thing that had one kind of comprehensive sort of narrative voice yeah so that all got done in lockdown there was a lockdown book um and it's being published this year excellent by strange attractor press who are lovely they've pub published so many um wonderful things so oh this is fantastic and did you write in it were you able to reflect on all those bits and pieces and give it some sort of sense of now as well as being able to live it as it was back then. I just wondered if how you processed this kind no, of No, it's actually just it's it's just a seven year memoir. It's just it is nineteen seventy-four to nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two. So like nineteen seventy-five to nineteen eighty two, I think. Yeah, it's a seven year and it's kind of twelve autobiographical stories as opposed to a continuous it's sort of chronological but there's overlaps so there's a whole big long story about say Adam and the Ants there's a whole big long story about Rima Rima there's a whole big long story about working as um, a quote-unquote exotic dancer um, there's a story about the ICA um, which sort of circles around the prostitution exhibition but is about a lot more it is I do you know bring in all this reflection on the experimental yes companies and things like that um so yeah that's the kind of structure is that is that there's there's these 12 you know these 12 stories that are sort of sort of chronological but but some of them you know escape their immediate 
time period to reflect a little bit before and after. Yes. Was there much that, was there much you discovered doing it, you know, that you'd slightly forgotten or having to sort of work out how to frame it in the in the in the uh, narrative? Yeah, yeah it took, took um it took a while to get the kind of get the right voice because as, as I say, there were lots of different things that had been written before, and I kind of put the first part of the process just gathering them all up. Some of them had been published, and some of them were just rotting away in the bottom of a drawer or on some, you know, a floppy disk somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was all this, and because they'd been written at different points of time, or so maybe things were sort of started and they were just half the story or something, because, because they were written at different different points in time they 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 all had kind of slightly different tone a slightly different voice so so I did want it to have a more kind of co cohesive feel so yeah there was there was that really that thing of I had to kind of cannibalize my own writing and 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 rewrite it in a in a more consistent voice so that, yeah. that was the, really to make it so that it did I wanted it to be um even though it's not a um, a straightforward linear narrative it is 12 12 stories um I nevertheless wanted to feel like a this is a book not just a hodgepodge of of bits of writing that have been kind of somehow chucked together yeah that's interesting yeah. I know I know one should never admit this because it sort of sounds terrible but do you uh did you did you find some really good photographs to put in the book because let's face it that's what we always go for straight away and then we get to the book. Yes, because you know, because that's the one thing that can really, you know, get it. Yeah. The, you know, posters of the period. Because all those things at the time were like whatever. And then years later, you think actually they're amazing. Because because actually last year I came across this guy who'd been putting together various. Um, yes. Is, is that Toby Mott? No. Pardon? Is that, is that a Toby Mott book or is that who's that by? Um, God, he came to the UEA for a year from America, but he was really obsessed with, um, yeah, flyers. And I think he, because when you were talking about Adam, he was talking about some of Adam Ant's kind of early yeah. flyers and posters because he was very good at yeah. it. And I just wondered if you'd sort of put any of that kind of material or yeah. hoping to put yeah. it. Yes, there is, there is. In fact, funnily enough, I was doing quite a lot of that today in a slightly world weary way, just kind of like, oh God, all because I've got things sorted into folders, but then I haven't sorted them as efficiently as I thought I had. So um, I've had this sort of wonderful thing of like, just trying to make some sense of these categories and, oh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there are lots of photos. Yeah, yeah. But it's always, yeah. I mean, now they just look so different, don't they? You know, I mean, I, get, yeah. I, I love, you know, books or photographic books of the 70s from whatever era, you know, like whether there's squats or whether there's kind of convoys or, you know, like community. Everyone, you know, I mean, it just is such a different period, isn't it? And I remember the 70s quite well, but now you look at it and we do look like we were sort of living in some sort of, you know, ghetto really, weren't we? So. Yeah, and of course we didn't, none of us, I mean, we didn't have mobile phones with, with, um, with cameras on. So, you know, it was, I mean, it's like, it's just like this whole, you know things this whole periods where there's no photos you know i mean i mean for me looking finding trying to find photos you know as soon as i stopped playing in bands i mean there's like loads of photos of rima rima there's loads of photos of um industrial i confess the, 
the record I made with Genesis Peorage, you know, it was proper photo shoots. There's loads of photos, weekend swingers and the L trains, again, proper photo shoots or just people at, at gigs taking pictures of us, you know. So so that kind of second half of the book, there's actually a lot of lot of stuff out there mm. that either I've got or has just surfaced, you know, on the internet, whatever, in recent times. But the, uh, the stuff from like 1974, 1975, you know, sort of writing about going to these events and, and doing these things. And there's just no photographic evidence. There's not one photo of me, I don't think, from 74, 75, you know. But there's a couple of really, really um, not very good kind of Polaroids or, or photos taken in a photo booth. But luckily, my publisher really likes those, which I do. I like them. I like the blurriness and sort of weirdness of of a very old Polaroid or something down on the codec and somatic where everybody's got red eyes and it's all out of focus, you know. There's something kind of quite interesting about Yes, that. absolutely. Nice. So they're going in, all the weird out of focus things done in and things done in like, you know, um, photo mat machines and whatever, they're going in as well. And yes, some of the posters, you know, some of the, um, the old Letra set posters and things like that, they're going in, yeah. Yeah. This is fantastic. Well, I'm so pleased. I do love a bit of archiving. I think it's an age thing, isn't it, really? But I do, you know, I just think it's really nice seeing how many people have brought to get brought together their kind of bits and pieces and story of their lives. So, um, and yeah, and it's a period which could easily, you know, has got easily forgotten. You know, sort of we hear a lot about the 60s. We hear, you know, Dylan Jones talking about the 80s a lot. And there's, you know, some people to, you know, it's like, oh, yes, is that that decade? But then there's all the other bits that happen with each decade. And well, after... for me, it's been quite important with this memoir to sort of talk about the gay clubs and the sort of role and not not in a polemical kind of way, but, but, but to just make it really clear that women were really kind of up front. You know, the girls were there very important and and I think for me that's the side of punk that somehow got pushed aside you know where it became all about gobbing boys and it wasn't there was a lot more <laughs> that you know you, um, I mean you but this might have happened just before that period but I do remember yeah. and I've been listening to this podcast of um, David Bowie main man and there was a whole bit on the is it sombrero club and Freddie yeah. And, mind. Yeah, in, and Wendy in, talking about her interest and lifestyle. I mean, you know, did did any of that, did you sort of enter any of that kind of world, though it sounds like it yeah. was good. Yeah, and 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 I mean, I mean that's that's what we, you know, life in 1975 into 1976 was all gay clubs, you know, it's just where it's just where everything was really. And that's the big thing that I felt important. Well, one of the things I felt really important to kind of that that gets you know put out into the world that that get that that this for a start that disco and punk develop side by side mm -hmm. and were interlinked um and that all of this was happening in gay clubs you know so this this is this is the if you like the um the history that's been been pushed aside it's this people people most people would not be aware that punk came out of gay clubs and came out of you know and that, that punk and disco developed side by side no um, it's not i mean it's a little bit more written about in with the new york story this kind of the birth of like punk yeah. disco and rap you know and this sort of yeah. the sense of the yeah. ghetto and you know all the you know like richard keith herring and andy warhol yeah. and, and yeah. That, you know all that scene but um 
and all the DJs from that period as well. So there was that sense. And again, it you know, it's just kind of quite interesting. There was a lot more dressing up, I think, in America. But also you had all the, the drag scene as well, which had um, Noam Clan, uh, Noel, Noel, this, oh God, who's the guy that, you know, um, Klaus Nomi, that's it, the months, Lance yeah. Loud and all the that crowd. Um, so they, yeah. they, there was a, there's a huge bit on in, in sort of New York with that, and obviously Joey Arias, the great drag queen in New York, who was also yeah. in uh, Cirque du Soleil, Zoomanity. Yeah. That's the um, that's the the mind, yes. We love him. So yes. <laughs> well, this is good. This is brilliant. So if you could have said something, just kind of curious. I mean, if you could have whispered something in your 16, 18 year old, you know, ear as you were sort of about to embark in the world, is there, is there anything that you would have just thought, oh yeah, that would have been really good to have known because you've learned it now. But I just wondered if there was a few key bits that you would have just thought, yeah, we wished I'd known that when I was 16. Um. I don't think, I don't think I'd want to change anything, um, even even the bad things and even the weird things or the things that weren't quite right, you know, or the supposedly wrong decisions like going to teach training college when I was actually never gonna, never gonna be a school teacher. But, but I think I, I, I suppose I'd sort of, I suppose I'd say to myself that I'd, I'd just reassure myself that it, that none of it actually matters, that everything changes it will pass <laughs> you know whatever's going on something different will be going on really soon so it's all totally fine yes um, yeah it's, that's really interesting I always think you know those moments where it's a bit hard work you think it will pass and you won't be focusing on it 24 7 it will eventually be something oh yes I forgot about that angsty thing that I had in my mind Mm. it does mm. pass doesn't it I know this is where we need Gabrielle Roth and the five rhythms really isn't it dance it out dance it out definitely um yeah and it's not I don't know it's funny isn't it because I mean obviously I walk, walk, walk the streets of London dressed in like rubber miniskirts with stockings and suspenders showing underneath and you know all sorts of things like that so on one level I never cared what people thought of me but on you know, on other levels, I did, I did, I did care and I did, did worry, you know, worried that, uh, about making wrong decisions or, or worried that, that I was letting someone down. I mean, it was really difficult to leave teacher train college for all the reasons I was saying earlier about coming from a working class background. And you're like the first person in your family to go into any sort of higher education. I mean, my dad had to leave school when he was 13, 14 or something, you know, um, and so the fact that I had this free educa education, which was, not only was it free, we got grants. Ta -da! Save money and sign on during the summer and winter and Easter. Oh, I mean, amazing. So the fact that I had that and I kind of chose to, you know, throw it away, it was quite, I know it was quite upsetting for the, for the family. Um, but I, so again, I think I would just tell myself that it's that it's that you have to do what you need to do yourself. You can't you can't you can't just please other people. Yes, so. this is tricky. And what did your and did your parents see you during the sort of eighties and nineties period? I just wondered what they were thinking as as you were saying. Oh, I'm in this band. I'm in that band. Oh, I've got children. Did they did they sort of enjoy watching your you know growing through those periods? Yeah, yeah, they, they, 
I was always really close to my dad, who, who was always sort of proud and supportive, even when I left college. And he was obviously upset, but then he kind of bit his tongue and didn't say too much, you know. And, and um, yeah, so, so, so there, was, there was always a kind of close relationship, and I always felt that he was very sort of supportive. I mean, I had a much more difficult relationship with my mum, right from the, oh, you could be an air hostess. Conversation. <laughs> you know, I always felt I always felt that she never got me. You know, and and um, and that was always kind of difficult. Um, and I felt quite kind of. I just felt I wasn't. You know, yeah, I wasn't the wasn't the daughter that she quite wanted. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, oh God, parents. I mean, they're dead now, so it's all. You know, by the by, but um, it's yeah. Tricky. So it was it was an odd one because I felt I I did often feel with my mum that, that that she was always like well why don't you do this and she's quite crit critical and like you know yeah well, well you could do this and why don't you do that and, and I'd, I'd find myself arguing with her a lot you know and so um yes. yeah tricky Anyway, look. Never, I mean, she obviously never understood. I, I mean, I remember take. I, I, I tell you, one big regret is actually that that she died before I started working with Rag Roof and doing all this kind of sort of co-creation in the community and running things like tea dances and immersive dance events and kind of creating these kind of quite quite you know um, accessible sort of shows that, that involved a lot of verbatim sort of work with people. She would have loved all that stuff because the only stuff of mine she got to see was, yeah, me, me, me dressed in some strange wool dress that, that where the act was, I'd go on stage and unravel it in front of the audience, you know, and scream loudly or something. <laughs> Afterwards, yeah, she'd be like, well, how much, uh, how much are they paying you to do that? You know, with her broad Dublin accent, I'd be like, you know, get into some sort of argument with her about money and performance and things. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> that was my mother, but she, she, uh, yeah, she, she would have, she would. It's a shame she missed some of the bits that she would have kind of quite liked that were um, less, you know, less bizarre performance art and more kind of accessible, you know, street yeah. vision. Oh, it's so tricky, isn't it? But look. I think we'll leave it there. It just gets very emotional after that. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Dorothy Max Pryor for giving me the time for that interview. And um, as she said, her book will be coming out, memoir, at the end of the year 2022. So a massive thank you for that. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I'm thanking her. But anyway... It's just nice to. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86Show. Keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, don't bother. Seriously. Um, also, all these interviews have been archived. Lucky you. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Podbean, indeed. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>